Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitive Podcast. Today, my good friend Brad McDonald, who is a long-standing Sandler franchisee from the US, and he's got a fascinating history. So without any further ado, Captain Brad McDonald, tell us your story. Well, thank you for having me, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, when you say my story, I guess I could talk a little bit about how this book came about, if that's what you'd like me to do. Please. Well, I began my journey with Sandler about a year after I retired from the U.S. Navy, and I was a career naval officer, son of a submarine captain myself, and I was a submarine officer for most of my 28 years in the Navy and rose to the position of commanding officer one of our attack submarines after serving on four other submarines. And it was a life dream, lifelong dream for me. I was a, a nine-year-old boy when my father was a captain of a submarine, and he took me for a ride on the bridge of his submarine, which was a World War II vintage diesel boat. <laughs> and I sat there on the bridge of that submarine watching my father as proud as I could be. He was giving orders through a megaphone to the line handlers on deck and navigating the ship down the Cooper River in Charleston, South Carolina. And the stewards were bringing me chocolate milk and donuts. And I thought, wow, this is a pretty good life. I'd like <laughs> to do this one day. So uh, literally 30 years later, I took command of a submarine at the same pier where I'd watched my father's change of command take place. I did mention to my dad in my speech, short speech, after I accepted command of the ship that I was still waiting on the chocolate milk and donuts, <laughs> that a dream had come true. Anyway, when I retired from the U.S. Navy, a common thing for naval officers to do when they get out of the Navy is to go work for a defense contractor. And that was something uh, that just did not appeal to me. Nothing wrong with it. I'm sure it's a great career path, but it just did not appeal to me to go to work that kind of service. And I was always enamored with the more capitalist approach to life of being in sales. So I went to work for an investment, an insurance and investment company. And I essentially, I was a financial advisor, but we know what that means, Marcus. That means insurance and investment salesman. <laughs> and so... I'd come out of this world where a submarine commanding officer, generally speaking, I held to the ideas that if I kept my crew informed and respected them, then they respected me back. They told me the truth and they generally followed my orders. Not generally, they always followed my orders. That submarine, if, you call a, if I told a sailor to jump, he would ask how high on the way up. And you can imagine what a shock it was for me when I came into the sales world and started dealing with prospects who, as you probably know, don't always respect the salesperson's time and efforts, and they don't feel any compulsion to tell the truth. And the last thing in the world they feel any need to do is to follow any orders. So two more different universes could never have collided than they did for me in the first year or two in sales. And that's how it all started for me, Marcus. So tell me this. When you were in the Navy, essentially, you had your finger poised over the big red button and the potential to remove thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives. If I remember rightly, you faced something of a challenge when it came to talking to gatekeepers. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was even... Before that, and it was it was very dramatic, and I remember it clearly when I had to pick up the phone to make my first cold call, and I was terrified. I could hardly punch the numbers on the phone, 
And I had a script written out on a five by seven card of what I was going to say. And much to my chagrin, <laughs> the lady I was calling answered the phone. And I tried to work my way through this script and I could hardly do it. And I was so delighted when she said, well, I don't think I'm really interested in that. And I said, thanks. Goodbye. When I got off that phone call, I really wondered, why was that so difficult? Why was it such a challenge to pick up the phone and call somebody I didn't know? Never a problem to pick up the phone on the ship and tell somebody what to do. So that was a remarkable challenge, which probably leads into your question about gatekeepers or, or anybody I had to call. Why was cold calling a challenge? Why was prospecting a challenge? And I think one of the things I discovered, it was, it was around that time that a gentleman called me up almost out of the blue and introduced himself as a sales coach. I really didn't know what a sales coach was. I was about a year into my time of the insurance and investment business, which was going okay for me. I was making sales, but there were a lot of mental and emotional struggles going on. This fellow called me up and introduced himself as a sales coach, and in two short phone calls, convinced me to give him a lot of money to just talk to him once a week on the phone for 30 minutes. And it was probably one of the smartest decisions I made in my life. And he introduced me to the Sandler system. So I was introduced to it before I actually became a Sandler owner. I started using the Sandler methodologies and things like that. The most important thing he taught me was that there was this conceptual side to sales and that unless I got my mind and my own emotions straight, I would always have these struggles. One of the things I love about Sandler is the structure and the constraint. I've found over the years, I do a little bit of stand-up very badly. What I found was that by following rules and structure, and having constraint, it allowed me far more creative freedom than just simply trying to do everything. And what Sandler has taught me is having a framework, having a structure, having rules allows me all the creative freedom I need as long as I operate within those constraints. And I'm curious about your experience of moving from the military where there was obviously structure and discipline and rigor and moving into sales, and how you were able to make that transition? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a little bit of a, a paradox how having a structure and a, a, a process will actually give you some freedom and creativity. Those might sound mutually exclusive, but they're not. So yes, certainly the Navy and the submarine force in particular is an organization that's full of processes. If you think about a nuclear submarine, you've got one of the most complicated pieces of equipment ever designed on the planet, being operated in a very dangerous environment, always, 24-7, when you're on the ship, whether you're on the surface or underwater, the ocean's trying to get in there. The insides of the ship are full of danger, high voltage electricity, high temperature, high pressure steam, high pressure electrolics, high pressure air, and uh, you know, there's just plenty of things that are out to get you. So that's being operated by who? By something between 100 and 120, mostly men, some women who are average age, 23, 24 years old, average education, high school, and maybe uh, 13 to 15 people who have college degrees. 
So when you have these people operating things, it's complicated processes and systems and very, very adamant about following those. So when I was introduced to a systematic approach for selling, it kind of made sense to me. Oh, maybe that's what I've been missing all this time. I've just been telling people why they need this stuff and wondering why they didn't buy it. <laughs> and a more systematic approach actually uh, started to work. And I, I thought about the culture of that submarine force. It was really about staying alive and accomplishing the mission in dangerous environments. And there's a concept that only a submariner probably would understand. It's two simple words, basic submarining. That means a lot to a submariner. And if I was going to encapsulate what basic submarining means in three phrases, one would be, the first phrase would be, follow the procedure. The second one would be, supervise everything. And the third would be, communicate clearly. And over the years of my time in Sandler, as I thought about those concepts, I thought, well, that's kind of what we encourage people to do in Sandler. Follow a process, follow a systematic approach to selling, supervise everything. What does that mean? Well, you know, Marcus, in our own network, we encourage accountability. We encourage not somebody standing over your shoulder telling you what to do, but we encourage salespeople to have an accountability system. And we encourage managers to learn a way to hold their people accountable to activities. So that's the second concept of basic submarine, supervise everything. And the third one, communicate clearly. And of course, that's, if you ask, you know as well as I do, or better than I do, if you ask Sandler people, people who have been engaged in Sandler for a long time, what is Sandler? One of the simplest explanations is it's a better way to communicate. So I think those three concepts of staying alive in a submarine, they kind of apply to staying alive in sales. I think that's a fantastic parallel. One of the things that I'm conscious of in the military as well is before any action, there's a briefing and a plan and you prepare and you rehearse. Then you do it and you monitor how you're doing it. And then you post event debrief. And I think one of the things that I love about the Sandler approach is that structure that creates predictability because it's not the plan that matters. I come from a military background as well. I'm an army brat. And one of the lessons my dad taught me was the plan never survives contact with the enemy. And I think it's not the plan that matters. It's the planning and it's the preparation, the rehearsal. What I'm fascinated by is why so many salespeople resist planning and resist role play when it clearly demonstrably improves their performance and the predictability of the outcome. Any idea why that is? Well, one of my favorite historical figures is one of your former prime ministers, and many quotes are attributed to people that never said them, but supposedly, or at least I like to believe, Winston Churchill said, plans are worthless, but planning is very important, or words to that effect. And so uh, that just parallels your point that the plan may not survive the first contact with the enemy, but you can't go into the battle without a plan. Why do people resist it? I think because the reason a lot of people are in sales, in my opinion, is because they don't like structure. They don't want somebody telling them what to do all the time. And that leads them to believe that sales will be a place where they can be very independent. 
the very thing that leads them into it, as is our own network, the 250 Sandler owners worldwide are of generally very entrepreneurial type people <laughs> who want to do something on their own. As a lot of small business owners, thousands or millions of small business owners around the world don't want somebody telling them what to do. So they want to do their own thing. And that ambitious spark will drive them to do the painful things it takes to get a business going. But the very thing that drove them there, the desire to not have structure in their life, is also the thing that can be a problem. So that's a long way of saying, or trying to answer your question, why people resist these things. They don't like structure. They don't like the very thing they need to be more effective in this role. And you're absolutely right. Having a systematic approach, practicing it, preparing for a sales call. I think one of the tools we have in Sandler is our pre-call planner and our post-call debrief. Two tools, actually. Yeah, and a lot of people like to wing it. This is another thing. I'd like to challenge that a little bit. My experience is that a lot of people fear being vulnerable and they see the preparation as constraining, but they see the rehearsal as something unnatural. Sales is a pretty unnatural process when you think about it. You're going into what most salespeople are expecting will be hostile territory. And like you've already alluded to, what we teach really above everything else is a human communications model. It happens to be incredibly effective in a selling environment, but it's just as effective in a management environment. And it works very well dealing with teenage kids as a parent. Well, maybe not teenagers, but kids. And I think people fear being vulnerable. So can we explore what vulnerability is and isn't? We can. Let me just say one thing first, though, uh, your comment about whether it's effective with teenagers, the system, things like that. I have two wonderful sons who are 36 and 30 years old, and they've given me five wonderful grandchildren, and they have two great wives, all that. However, growing up, there were some conflicts. And <laughs> when I first really started getting into Sandler, younger son was perhaps 14, 13, 14 years old. And I probably ran that relationship more like a submarine captain. And we had a lot of conflict. And when I learned the Sandler approach to communicating and started or stopped fighting and started asking questions and getting him to explain the rationale behind his actions, you know what happened, Marcus? <laughs> I, I fell in love all over with that boy. And, and we had a great relationship. And uh, not saying it solved every problem we ever had, but boy, sure, things sure got better when I uh, stopped fighting and started you know, asking questions. One of the lessons that I've taken over the years, because I fought and resisted structure and process, certainly for the first 17 years of my career, and you've talked about communicate clearly. I think ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. If you are ambiguous as a manager, if you're ambiguous as a salesperson, then it creates the conditions for conflict and misunderstanding. And I think what we're all seeking as human beings is clarity. We don't like that ambiguity. If we don't understand what our role is, what our position is, what the expectations are, what the outcomes we're working towards, then we're very easily going to find ourselves with mismatched expectations. And it's that gap that 
creates all sorts of problems, which is why I think one of Sandler's genius moments was where he not only turned the traditional selling system inside out, but then he tagged on at the beginning the upfront contracting process and then taught us to contract throughout the sales process because that prevents that confusion and that disconnect. So I'm really curious about your experience of using upfront contracting as a tool to overcome that vulnerability and that sense of exposure that a lot of salespeople have, particularly when they're going in to meet somebody who's got more gray hair, who's more successful, who's richer than they are. So could you give us some insight into the psychology behind that? Well, I think the upfront contract is perhaps one of the most valuable things that I learned in Sandler and hopefully a lot of my clients and maybe yours too. And when I spend time with people in a teaching or training role, or when I had my own Sandler business or franchise like you have, in class, when I was getting ready to teach upfront contracts, no matter how many times I stood in front of these people and talked about it, I would say, if you come to my class for a year five years, 10 years, or the rest of your life, and you only take two things away, I hope one of them is learning how to do an effective upfront contract, because I believe that will change a lot of things. And as far as the vulnerability thing, I think one of the things, you know, we, we talked about an upfront contract being five fundamental elements. How long are we going to spend together in this meeting? Why are we getting together? Exactly what do you want to accomplish? Exactly what do I want to accomplish? What outcomes are we looking for? And that's a great framework for an upfront contract. We also tell people it's your chance to diffuse any potential landmines or state up front what might be a roadblock. And a roadblock could be my biggest fear. What are the things I'm worried about? I like David Sandler's vulnerability. He would tell people in an upfront contract, one of my fears is when, as you might start asking me about money real early in this sales call, And I have a problem talking about money. It's hard for me to ask people for money. He would throw that out there and (laughs) he'd say, so when that time comes, will you take it easy on me or something like that? (laughs) And so when we're able to tell people our concerns and our fears, I think it's very helpful. It sets the stage for more honest and open communication. An example that I've heard, when I heard this the first time, I thought, that's me. (laughs) And the example was, one of our own fellow franchisees who said, I have two great weaknesses in sales. I want you to like me, and I'm afraid to ask you for money. And so I thought, man, that's me. I don't care how cool of a guy I was in the Navy or what was on my uniform or how much power or authority I had. Those days are gone. I'm sitting across from a business owner, and I want him to like me, and I'm afraid to ask him for money. So a funny thing happened when I started telling my class one of my biggest concerns is that I'm always afraid to ask people for money. And they would say, you didn't have any problem asking me for money. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, you know why? Because I learned externally how to do that. I learned the conceptual problems that were holding me back. I learned that when I was in third grade and we walked across the street and asked the neighbors how much their new car cost, and my mother said, don't ever ask somebody a question like that. In fact, that's in my book, uh, that little story, Marcus. I learned that when my mother found out that I was borrowing a small change from boys in the lunchroom in ninth grade and not always paying them back, 
boy, she got me around the collar and let me have it. She said, you don't ever ask people for money. And if you do, you better go pay them back right now. If you need money, you come talk to me. We'll figure this out. So when I came into insurance and investment sales many years later and had to ask people for a check to start the insurance policy, that was difficult. But I learned about the conceptual things that were holding me back, developed a different attitude about it, that asking people for money for insurance policy was okay, practice it over and over as a behavior, learned a technique, part of it, what you're talking about, upfront contract. Judy, Fred, we're going to be talking about your insurance recommendation here. One of the things I'm going to need next week when we get together to look at it is if you want to start this, I'm going to need for you to give me a check for the first payment. So I'm going to need you to bring your checkbook. If that's going to be a problem, let's talk about it right now. And by having that discussion, made it a lot easier when the time came. So back to this piece around vulnerability and fear. In my experience, the biggest obstacles that have ever held me back have been basically conjured up by the six inches between my ears and my catastrophizing inner voice. How do you still that voice? Well, I suppose that voice for me was my third month being an investment insurance guy. And the first month, I had a reasonable month. I made about $11,000 in commissions. And that was pretty good. That was a good living. That was not bad. First, and that this was many years ago, and it's my first year out of the Navy. More money than I had made in a month in my life before. The second month was about half of that. The third month was $976. And I was terrified. And I'll never forget, I was sitting at the kitchen table not exactly crying, but somewhat unable to function or move. And it was Friday morning and my wife walked in and said, what's up with you? And I said, I think it's all over. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, nobody's buying anything. I think everybody's bought all the insurance they're ever going to buy. I really had internalized that belief that nobody in the world was ever going to buy any more insurance. And she said, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know one thing. You said four months ago when you decided to do this, you were doing it for two years no matter what. Unless we're on the street, we don't have a place to live. This is what you're doing. So go to work. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I got up and I left and uh, I went to a party that night and I actually uh, met uh, four people who became clients within a month. It was amazing turnaround. But the inner voice was there, the fear, because why? Because in the U.S. Navy, at least for me, in the U.S. Navy, failure truly was not an option. And we had an expression on submarine that a submarine was a place where you don't make the same mistake once. (laughs) It's likely to lead to something really bad, like death and loss of the ship, things like that. So we didn't tolerate mistakes very well out there. Here I was in this new world where we were expected to make 10, 20, 30 mistakes a day, meaning... Call 25 people up, 22 of them are going to tell you to get lost right away. Three of them say, maybe I'll talk to you for a minute, and then one will give you a meeting. And that's considered not a bad day in sales. That would be considered death in the submarine force. So I had to change that sort of paradigm in my mind and learn to embrace those little failures, which was very difficult. And I think that might be a little bit what you're talking about, this mindset that uh, you might have had in your life, and I certainly had 
is if things didn't go right, it was a failure on my part as opposed to just getting one step closer to the next yes. Samba has a rule that doesn't translate particularly well into UK English because a dump means something quite different. Today's dump is tomorrow's ice cream. And the realization that what you fail at today in sales is never fatal. It's not like on a submarine. And failure is universal, unavoidable, part of the human condition. And the challenge here is to ensure that you're continuously moving forward. And I think your wife may have met Tim Roberts' wife because they're certainly cut from the same cloth based on the conversations mm. that he had with his. And what's really interesting is that I think we're conditioned very early on to consider that failure in role is a personality defect. And often it's tied up with shame. And shame in childhood, based on Brene Brown's work, tends to lead to perfectionism. And perfectionism is a byline in sales for procrastination. So what I'm really curious about is how you help people to break through that pattern behavior where they spend a lot of time trying to get everything perfect, getting ready to get ready, and get out of that self-paralysis. Well, what comes to mind hearing you talk about that is a story. This was uh, some years ago. A woman who had attended a brief I had said she wanted to talk to me about you know sales training. And so she and I had a conversation one-on-one in my training center quite some time, and I asked her about her sales process, as I typically did, what went right, what went wrong. And she referred more than once to people, particularly male business owners, demeaning her. And I said, well, give me an example. And she said, well, uh, she sold radio advertising. And she said that she was talking to one guy and she gave him a price quote for some radio ads. He said, you must be on crack cocaine charging prices like that. And I said, what did you do? She said, I started crying. (laughs) I said, okay. So we continue to talk. And although I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I started to wonder, since we have this transactional analysis that we base everything in Sandler on, which says a lot of these reactions we have later in life come from childhood. So I started asking, I just said, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your family, your parents. And, And she started talking about her father, who had been a professional golfer when she was growing up. And so he was a very successful athlete. She said that he constantly berated her for not being good enough at basketball, for not running fast enough, and for being overweight. And I said, okay, well, sounds like there's a problem there. I said, you know what I think's happening? I think you're taking your father into your sales calls with you. At which point, she started crying again. I said, okay. You can be upset, but I think that's what's happening. And she said, I never thought about it, but I think you're right. I said, I think you are taking this sort of expectation in that these people are going to demean you in your sales calls. I said, I cannot, probably cannot help you with your issue with your father, but I can help you not take him into your sales calls with you if you'd like to work on that. So uh, I don't know, maybe that's an example of what you're talking about. I think it is. We carry a lot of baggage. And certainly I've noticed it in my sales career, that if I've had bad experiences in the past, they come back to relive themselves. And there's a tendency to catastrophize 
And what I'm really curious about is how you, when you were selling, were able to step out of that moment and recognize it for what it was, which wasn't the reality. It was your imagination running riot. And then freeing yourself up to be able to perform excellently in the moment. Well, I would say uh, it was a combination of those Sandler techniques and tools. And so the uh, first one I'll refer to is that Sandler 70-30 rule that says in a sales call, 70% of our demeanor or our ego state or our actions and messages come from our nurturing parent and 30% from our adult. And the way I internalize that for myself is I said that on the inside, I have to be a couple of things. One is I just have to be a computer of feeling and sensing no emotions from what this person is saying. On the other hand, externally, I need to be able to convey some amount of empathy and concern and genuine. And I know that sounds like a contradiction, but I need to be able to convey that, but not to take my own emotional needs into the sales call. And so an example from my first year or so in sales, I was always getting emotional inside and I'm sure it showed. But eventually, if a prospect was bearing down on me, telling me what to do, giving me a hard time, I tended to acquiesce to a lot of that and want to do things like cut prices for them and pander to them, things like that. Later on, when I got a little better at this stuff and not only used the Sandler 70-30 approach, but also, let me just segue just for a second. And say one of the best things that I think David Sandler ever said was when somebody asked him, what made you so good at sales? And he said, I heard this on a recording. He said, I think the thing that made me good was that IR theory, image role theory, helped me be okay being not okay. Now, you could spend an hour explaining that whole statement. But he said, in other words, if a prospect wants to do something to make me not okay, it doesn't bother me. It's okay. I'm just on the path to figure out if I can make a sale here or not. Either way is okay. So later on, when prospects would bear down on me or give me a hard time or start telling me what to do or after agreeing to make a decision and then telling me, well, just go on back to your office and send me an email, I learned that I don't have to acquiesce to these things. And so an example would be, I remember a gentleman coming into my training center. We had agreed to a sales call about uh, him and his staff of three salespeople. And I invited him to sit down at the table with me where I had a pad of paper and a pen set out for him. And he stood there as I sat down and he looked at me and says, I don't need to sit down. I only need you to answer three questions. One, what makes you think you can help my team? Two, I need to know how much this is going to cost. And three, I need some references that I can call and find out if you're any good. And I can tell you my first year in the business, that would have been terrible. I would have just allowed this person to take control of the situation. But by using uh, Sandler IR, first of all, I said, okay, he's trying to take a more okay position in here. He's also trying to take the critical parent position and put me in the adaptive child position where my only goal is to satisfy or answer his questions. That's what he's trying to do. I will allow him to feel more okay. That's fine. That's not going to bother. 
we're not going to allow this critical parent to adaptive child relationship to develop. I need to change the dynamic. We need to, he needs to see me as an equal, as a peer. I think one of the really interesting things, you've touched on it already, is that the whole Sandler methodology is predicated and based on the system of transactional analysis. For those people who aren't familiar with it, could you just give a sort of two-minute introduction to what TA is? Yeah, transactional analysis is a psychological theory or model for demonstrating how humans interact with each other. And it's called transactional analysis for the simple reason. Let's just say, Marcus, you and I approach each other in a hallway. In other words, two human beings approach each other. A transaction is going to take place. One person is going to initiate it, and the other person is going to respond. The transaction could be that we ignore each other. I mean, that's a transaction in itself. But you might say hello, and I say hello back. That's a transaction. And transactional analysis says we tend to uh, deliver messages and feel things from one of three ego states. First one's a parent ego state. And if I could take a newborn child and gently slide their brain to the side in their head and put in that place an old-fashioned cassette tape recorder and hit record for the first five, six, or seven years of their life, all the messages coming in to that child are recorded. And then at about age seven, that recorder goes to read-only. It's It doesn't record a lot after that. And it's called the parent tape or the parent ego state because most messages coming in when you're less than seven years old are from your parents or authority figures. I have had three grandchildren in my house for the last few weeks, and their ages are eight, six, and two. And that two-year-old has everybody in her life as an authority figure. Everybody's (laughs) telling her what to do. So that parent can also be nurturing or can be critical. Critical uh, saying, sit down, shut up, eat everything on your plate, do this, be good, be nice. Or it could be nurturing, say, I love you, you're wonderful, and uh, you're a great guy. By the way, as a side note, I had the most nurturing father in the world up until he was 92 and died two years ago. I'm a lucky guy. I won the daddy lottery. I got nurtured a lot. (laughs) He was that kind of guy. So that's the parent ego state, and then there's the child. And if I could put another cassette recorder in that child's head and hit record during those first seven years of life, this is the recordings of all the responses the child had to those incoming messages, the emotions, the fears, the anger, the happiness. So if you're feeling sad, mad, glad, or scared, you're in your child ego state. When you're feeling emotional, you're in your child ego state. And children have a need to be liked. They have a need to rebel. They have a need to have fun. All those things are contained in that child ego state. And then somewhere around 8, 10, 12 months old, a child starts to develop what we call the adult ego state. And around that age is the first time the child can process the world for themselves and maybe start to make a couple of decisions information coming in throughout your life can update the adult ego state. So if you think about maybe three circles, one on top of the other, parent at the top, the adult in the middle, and the child at the bottom, that's a graphical or pictorial representation of the three ego states. And transactional analysis is all about how we interact from those ego states and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And it's a very useful theory. In sales, as you know very well, 
Marcus, I think I already alluded to it. We and Sandler say, take your nurturing parent and your adult ego state into your sales calls. Leave the other ones outside the office because they're not going to do you a lot of good. In other words, Marcus, if you're my prospect and I come into the sales call and I launch into my critical parent by saying, Marcus, you better buy this today because the price goes up on Monday. What's your natural reaction going to be? Rebellious. I'm going to dig my heels in, push back. Yeah, you're going to say, I'll take that price increase and a few more. Yeah, so the critical parent doesn't tend to engender positive responses from the prospect. And so we use transactional analysis to sort of underpin our entire process. This is really interesting. It's something that it took me a while when I first joined Sonda to really get to grips with it because I think it's very easy to get seduced by the great technique. The technology of the Sonda approach is beautifully elegant and you don't necessarily need to understand transaction analysis or TA to be able to use the technique. But if you don't understand TA, then in my experience, you tend to fall into the trap of using the technique as a weapon. And Sander's number one rule is nurture, nurture, nurture. And I think it's very easy to forget that you're dealing with a human being. They're not a walking ATM machine. And they buy for their reasons and only their reasons, not yours. And Sander reminds us as well that prospects buy for their reasons, not our reasons. And we cannot convince them to buy. They have to convince themselves. So I think it's really important for everybody who's listening to understand that if you don't approach Sander with a good grounding in TA, chances are you're going to find yourself in creating the conditions for prospects to object. And again, Sandler teaches us this rule. Prospects only object because we take them there as salespeople. So what I'm very interested to explore now is that dynamic when you're trying to nurture the prospect to tell their story, but there's that temptation to explain why your shiny widget, your product, your service is going to be right for them. And that conditioning that we've had to talk about the features and the benefits and why it's so important not to fall into that trap. I think uh, you raise a great point. And I think that one thing that I learned as I got to know transactional analysis or TA more, as you alluded to, it was a took yourself a few years and took me several years to really keep my arms around it, probably still am, is that people do not like to be convinced of things. I think more simply, we say people love to buy, they hate to be sold. And it took me a while to realize that everybody has a belief system. Everybody has their beliefs. Remember, David Sandler had that line, and he said, if you step between a man and his beliefs, he'll cut your throat. That was another (laughs) line. It took me a long time to figure out what does that mean? People don't want their beliefs changed. Some people are open to having their beliefs challenged, but they need to come to conclusions on their own. And so when we try to convince people or tell people why they need something, why what they're doing is wrong, that is generally our critical parent. 
I have an expression, and I'm sure you've heard it, you probably use the same one. We say, don't should on people. As soon as I tell you what you should do, I'm coming across as a critical parent, and that's going to engender your rebellious child. If I tell you, Marcus, you should buy this today because the price goes up on Monday, your rebellious child is going to say what, Marcus? Go boil your head. <laughs> right. A very that's British slimy. response. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So when we tell people what they need to do, what they should do, what they ought to do, it comes across like your mother saying, Marcus, clean up your room. It's a mess. And you didn't want to clean it up. And that's why we say, don't take your critical parent into sales because you start telling people what to do. It's going to engender the rebellious child. On the other hand, if you ask people questions... And I say, well, Marcus, I don't know if this product is right for you or not. What are you thinking right now? Well, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to say, nope, don't want it, which I wasn't going to be able to talk about either way. Or you might start telling me why you think it's good, why you need it. Now, I can say, sounds like a pretty good thought there. I can be a little more nurturing and let you convince yourself. This then comes to another crucial part of the sales process, which is that in traditional selling, we're always taught to present the features and benefits, which are our data. And more often than not, the features and benefits are intellectual. In your book, you talk about speaking to the prospects in a child and about emotional buying. Do you mind elaborating on that and why that's so important? Well, in the Sandler system, we have those three qualifying steps, which we call pain, budget, and decision. And the reason those steps exist in the Sandler system are at least twofold, maybe threefold. One of the reasons that those steps are there before any kind of presentation or proposal is that traditional sales presents first. Ask a couple of questions, start presenting, deliver a proposal. And then the objections come up. And the objections are generally or always, I know always is a big word, but in my world, it's always been one of three things. I don't need it, it costs too much, or I can't make a decision. Some form of those things. I don't need it could be a whole lot of different things. It could be, I don't like it, it's not the right one, it's not the right color, but whatever. Time is wrong. Yes, suitability is not there. So suitability of product is the biggest, is one objection. Second objection is cost too much. I can't afford it. You're trying to rip me off. And the third big objection is I can't make a decision or I got to think it over. I got to talk to somebody. It's the ability to to decide. So we have those three qualification steps. Do you need it? We call that the pain step. Not only do you need it, do you really need it? Do you really want it? Does your (laughs) emotionally, do you want this thing? And why is that? Because decisions are made emotionally. People tell me, I don't make emotional decisions. I'm thinking, you sure do. You may not know it, but you do. Because that's the way the brain works. The emotional center says, I want it. And the analogy in TA is that's that's the child. The child is emotional. The child says, I want it. I I want that new car. It's really cool. So that's the first step of qualifying. The second step is the budget step. And that's to solve that problem. Can you pay for it? Are you going to pay for it? Are you going to want to pay for it? Are you able to pay for it? 
And then the third step is the decision step, which answers the question, are you able to make a decision? Do you want to make a decision? When are you going to make the decision? So we have those three things because they're the three big objections in sales. But the other reason we have those three compartments is satisfies addressing all of the main ego states. The pain compartment, the do you need it, the suitability compartment, that's for the child. Because the child's the emotional one that says, I want it. And until the child's ego state, until the emotional center of the brain says, I want it, I need it, they're not buying it. That's where the decision is made. We also have that expression in Sandler, you know, that says decisions are made intellectually. I mean, decisions are made emotionally, but they're justified intellectually. So the pain step is so that child can make an emotional decision. I want it or I don't. And then the next step, the budget step, that's for the adult, the rational, logical adult to say, yes, it makes sense to spend this much money on it. Now, the adult starts to justify the decision intellectually. And the decision step is for the parent ego state to get permission. Because why? Because parents, what do parents want to know? They want to know, what are the other kids' parents letting them do? Okay, you can do this. So that's another reason why we have those three compartments to tap into all three of those ego states and to hit on the emotional component. Do you need it? Do you want it? But which, by the way, is what when you think about it, that's what a lot of salespeople attempt to do with the presentation, attempt to get you excited, but then they completely skip any sort of discussion with the adult. Hey, does it make sense to spend this much money? And the parent, do you think you're ready to get permission? So they only engage one of those ego states. And that's, of course, why a lot of people have buyer's remorse after they buy it. I don't know if you've ever had buyer's remorse. Mm -hmm. But that's when that child says, yep, I want it. And the salesperson manages to sell it. And then a day later, that critical parent steps in and says, what in the world did you just do, Marcus? You just committed yourself 225 pound a month expense for the next five years. You knucklehead, take it back. My wife does that for me. (laughs) My adult's very small. Okay, yeah. (laughs) One topic I would really like to explore before we finish is the psychology of management and salespeople. Because one of the things I'm increasingly conscious of is that most problems with sales start with management. And too often, managers really, really do not have a clue what their real job is. I think managers have three lines in their job description. One, hire the best people. Two, get the best out of them. And three, protect them from the idiocy of the bosses. And I'm curious about the number two part, which is getting the best out of their people. I know that you've transitioned out of your franchise and you're much loved coach within the Sandler Franchise Network. In your experience, dealing with these cat herding kind of situations where you're dealing with people who escaped the corporate America and they've gone independent, how do you manage the relationship as a coach to ensure that you're getting the best out of the people that you're coaching? using these psychologies? Well, one of the things that uh, you might have heard, uh, I talk with people often about the four deadly sins of sales management. And 
those four deadly sins are, one, there is no sales manager. Two, the owner is the sales manager. Three, they took the best salesperson and made that person, uh, you are the sales manager. And four, the sales manager is also selling, meaning the sales manager is competing with the very people that he or she is supposed to be training, coaching, mentoring, supervising, and nurturing. So I think when people end up in sales management, it's sometimes, and this is not any type of indictment or accusation against sales managers, it's a tough job, but I think sometimes they don't get the training, mentoring, coaching, and nurturing they need. So Jonathan Farrington, who runs the Sander Research Center, was being interviewed by Brian Sullivan in July, and he made a very bold statement, which is only 6% of sales managers worldwide are qualified to do the job. That's a terrifying statistic. Yeah, and a lot of times the qualification, it it may not be their fault. It may be that, you know, once again, nobody... (laughs) I can tell you, my career path in that nuclear submarine Navy was just loaded with training, 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 examinations, examinations, qualification processes, oral boards, coaching, a lot of times with my captain's boot up, my you-know-what, but there was a, a lot of that, and I don't think the sales managers get a lot of that. It's like, go manage these people. So. One thing I was thinking of was, this is not exactly addressed in the book we're sort of talking about, but most managers, most people in a position of leadership have never sat down and created for themselves a document or any type of description of what they believe their leadership sort of philosophy should be. And so a simple one part of that, one part of a personal leadership philosophy would just be what are my leadership principles? I remember when I was going to command of the submarine, sort of the pinnacle of my Navy career, and I thought, you know, I want, I want some... In fact, what I did was I interviewed on my own time many men that had recently completed submarine command that I respected, and I asked them what their lessons learned were. And I said, you know, what are some things that work for you? So from discussions with them and the observations I had made over the previous 17 years, I created my list of leadership principles. And it were just seven simple phrases that I carried around in my pocket in the front of my wheel book for those whole three years I was in command. Be approachable and in control of yourself. If you can't control yourself, how will your men think you can control this ship in time of emergency or peril? And number two was be consistent. And number three was be fair and just. And we don't have to go through the whole list. But that's one thing that I think managers might do well is to sit down and ponder, how do I lead? What are my guiding principles? And, and so that's maybe a little bit outside of your question. That's a great advice. Have you ever read Peter Block's The Right Use of Power? Not read that? Fabulous book, really well worth a read. And if you're in management or leadership, I'd urge you to read it. What you were asking about, I'll try to get back to, was how to get the most out of the people. And so I think it starts with what I just said. Ask yourself, what is your leadership philosophy? If you develop your own leadership philosophy, it's bound to include how do I lead? How do I motivate? How do I get things out of people? So I think you can use some TA. There's, of course, answering your question, we could spend days talking about it, but just a couple of nuggets. I think you can use the transactional analysis theory, philosophy, 
And once again, 70-30 rule, meaning what? Well, somewhere between 50 and 70% of my approach with the people that I manage is going to come from my nurturing parent. Why? Because people respond well to being nurtured. And then the rest of it's going to come from my adult. Does that mean you're never going to have to choose somebody out, that you're never going to have to chastise? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that you can probably do these things in a nurturing way. And you can use IR theory also. If you are my salesperson, Marcus, and I'm your manager and we're having a coaching session, I might have to say, let's talk about that sales call that didn't go so well last week, Marcus. And by the way, Marcus, you know IR theory, so let's agree that we're talking about your role here. When we're done with this conversation, you as a man, as a person, you're going to be intact when you walk out of this room. You're going to be a 10 out of 10 on the self-image side. We've got to address some role deficiencies here. Can we have that conversation, Marcus? And hopefully you would say yes. And so those are some thoughts for a manager. Okay. I'd like to start wrapping up. And my question to you is this. If you had a golden ticket and you were able to go back and advise the idiot Brad at 23, (laughs) what bit of sage advice would you give him now that you know what you know? Well, I think if I could just reframe the question a little bit, uh, I'm going to reframe it to if I could advise the idiot Brad when he was starting his sales career. Okay. And uh, the number one thing I would say to him is you're not going to get your emotional needs met in your sales calls or your interactions with your prospect. It's a, it's a fool's mission to think that's going to happen. So learn to separate out your emotional person, your emotional makeup and all that from what's happening in here. It's not combat. It's not battle. It's not a war. It's a sales call. It's a noble profession. And some people are going to want what you have and some people aren't. You'll make the lives of those who buy from you better. That's great. But don't take these no's as failures. Don't take some prospect being a jerk as an emotional problem for yourself. Don't take other people's problems on. In a phrase, don't try to get your emotional needs met in a sales call. That's the message I would take to that young lad, Marcus. Absolutely. Okay. I'm really curious about what you personally read. What are the books that you've been reading recently or that have had a life-changing impact on you? The number one book, without a doubt, for me, ever since I started this senior journey, has been Born to Win. It's a very old book written in the early 1960s by Muriel James and Dorothy Jongward. And it is, it's transactional analysis explained like nobody else has ever explained it. And it's, it's all about your life. And if you can fix a little bit of your life approach with TA, you can certainly fix a lot of things in sales. That's the number one book. Number two book for me, Change or Die by Alan Deutschman. And Change or Die came out maybe 10 years ago. And he talks about why it's so difficult to change, why 10 people with a life-threatening condition, whatever it is, a smoking, a health issue, bad habit, why those 10 people know they need to change, why only one of them will be successful and what it takes for the other ones to change. And when I read the book, I thought, man, this sounds like Sandler. It's a lot of the same principles and concepts. And that's what we attempt to teach people is how to change behaviors and work on some of their belief systems. So that's the number two book, Change or Die by Alan Deutschman. And number three is Trusted Advisor by 
David H. Meister, trusted advisor, is uh, how to move from just being a vendor or a peddler or a guy that sells sunglasses on a street corner in London. I don't know. Do they have peddlers in London like they do in New York City? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, uh, Very few of them are selling sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> so you have uh, peddlers on one end of the scale, and then you have vendors, and then you have salespeople, and you have consultants. And up at the highest level, you have trusted advisor. That's it. The book is all about how to be a trusted advisor with your clients. So those are the three big ones for me. Plus, there's a great book out on channel sales in Sandler. That's a pretty good book. I agree. Who's that by? Marcus Couchy. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. May, I, may I also, since we're wrapping up, may I mention that there's a chapter in my book about a sales program I attended in London about 10 years ago. <laughs> and it's the title of the... Uh, the title of that chapter is "It's a Sales World," and meaning that prospects are the same the world over. Absolutely. On that note, Brad's written a fantastic book called "The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology: Why Buyers and Sellers Do What They Do" by Brad McDonald. I recommend that you read it. And if you type into the comment section below, "Why do buyers and sellers do what they do?" then I'll send you a free chapter from Brad's book. So, Brad McDonald, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I'd love to have a further conversation with you because this is a massive topic and I firmly believe that you're a master of your craft. So thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. Well, thanks for having me and it's about time for me to get back over to the UK. I haven't been there in 10 years. so maybe I agree and I've got quite good since then. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll get together and we'll have a little tea somewhere in London or maybe something else. I, I suspect something else. Brilliant. Brad McDonald, thank you very much. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off and happy selling. If you've got a topic that you'd like me to cover, please get in touch at mkauke at sandler.com or ping me on LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good and interesting guest, then drop me a line with a little two or three lines about why you think you'd be an interesting guest to come on the podcast. Love to hear from you. Thanks a lot, guys. Happy selling. Bye.